Hi everyone, this is The Ruck. Thank you so much for listening and for joining us. I'm Stephen Jones. Today we have the voice of sanity with us in Jess Hayden, our expert from uh, Rugby World Cup. She'll be talking about the agony of the Rugby World Cup final in Auckland, also the controversy. We've also got the voices of semi-sanity, Will Kelleher and Stuart Barnes. Just a quick one, there's so much love and affection for internationals. Some parts of it, there's none at all. Very, very briefly, lads, let's go through the three worst. The Mexican wave, Sweet Caroline, or the bloke on the mic at every ground who roars at us to give the home team a big cheer as they take the field, as if no one else had ever thought of that. Uh, which is which is worse, and how can we get rid of it? Well, I'm, I'm going to jump in with a Sweet Caroline, because yeah. I was watching the, the 2020 World Cup, when it, which England beat Pakistan in, and they did an interview with Harry Brook, who's playing his first World Cup final at the age of 23. And while he was being spoken to by, uh, I think it was Ian Ward, or no, it was Mike Atherton, actually, from The Times. Um, he, Sweet Caroline was playing in the background. And then in his interview, I think he didn't quite realise he was basically repeating the lines of Sweet Caroline because he just kept going, so good, so good, so good. <laughs> God. All right. just like, oh, God, it's even permeated interviews. Like, we can't get rid of it. Stuart, you're very stoic when you're fighting copy. Uh, you tend not to get distracted, even by the ranting and raving. Mexican wave, sweet Caroline, part of your repertoire? Mexican wave now feels like something rather wonderful in contrast with sweet Caroline. Um, <laughs> I, I, find, I find the drum and bass every time there's a stoppage in play quite disturbing. Now, I'm a man who, who doesn't mind a bit of late-night drum and bass, but considering we have about an hour's stoppage every international, and it felt like about double that uh, England, Japan, one does leave Twickenham or international grounds with their eardrums blasted, not by what we want, which is the atmosphere of people roaring, but by someone shouting at you and then some music that, I'll be honest, I, I don't think the, the denizens of Twickenham are, are quite into their drum and bass. <laughs> Steve, if you were the, the host at Twickenham or Murrayfield or Cardiff or wherever else, what would be on your playlist? Uh, my playlist would clearly be, you, you know who it would be. The boss he's, all he's, the way he, through. He's now got, he's now got an, an album out of, of soul <laughs> classics. So okay. you can just stay with the boss all the time for every genre. <laughs> but, um, one, I mean, our producer, Alfie, uh, who's also the noted and outstanding commentator uh, for on Talksport Two, and what a service they've done. To be fair to them, this this autumn is just completely Mexican waved out. He hates it. <laughs> now we can't speak to him, Alfie. Can you just give us a sign that sums up your attitude to the Mexican wave? <laughs> I'm broadcaster for yes, that yeah, one. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Okay, we, probably, uh, we probably won't have that um, um, that one. Good job we couldn't hear that one. Um, just very briefly, lads. Huge weekend, Stuart. What was your What was your highlight? Give me a quick highlight each. Italy's win, uh, Ange Capuazzo's two tries. The best back play we have seen in the first two weeks of the autumn series has come from Italy. Uh, it's not just individuals scoring wonderful tries. The quality and rhythm and understanding of what they're doing behind the scrum is quite staggering. And, and, and young Capuazzo is getting all the headlines, and rightly so. Uh, but the Italian backs have been wonderful. Will? Oh, he's Nick mine. I was going to go for the cherubi-cheeked Capuozzo as well, who's actually on the... We're dripping, we're recording this on Monday, and they're dripping through the nominations for World Rugby Awards, and he's one of the breakthrough players of the year. And 
I think possibly Dan Sheehan might beat him to it, but Ange Kapowatsu, a couple of tries there. It, he, I was actually at an event a, f- a few weeks ago that was put on by the LNR, the French League, and he was at it in some sort of plush hall in the middle of Paris somewhere <laughs> with caviar and all sorts around. And he's absolutely tiny standing next to him. And he does look like a, a boy. You're joking about me trying to buy a pint. I don't think you'd get one anywhere in Europe at the moment, but hell of a player. Okay, um... Coming up on today's podcast, so much to get into. We'll be looking forward to England, New Zealand. We'll also look back at a galaxy of international action in the Autumn Nations series. There were wins for England, Ireland, Italy, thank goodness. Well said, Stuart Barnes. Wales, France and New Zealand, not Scotland significantly. There was also uh, one of my highlights, apart from taking Malinky the dog for a walk, one of my highlights was seeing Saracens and contemplating how on earth they can do it with half the side out. We name our God of Goddess of the Week. We'll be mentioning in the uh, Player of the Year Awards, World Rugby Player of the Year Awards. We'll also hear from New Zealand uh, with our dynamic duo who were down there covering the tournament, Elgin Alderman and Rachel Burford. First, let's start with the drama and pain of the final in Auckland. And here's Jess Hayden. Hi, Jess. How are you doing? And has the pain gone a little bit? (laughs) Uh, You know what? The shock hasn't quite worn off yet. I was so shocked by the result. Um, Disappointed for the England players, of course. Uh, I think they've worked so hard because of my work on the Where the Rose documentary that followed the Red Roses preparations. I'd seen very close up how hard they'd worked. And so it was disappointing, disappointed for them, but really just more shock uh, that how that final 10 minutes played out was huge. And so, yeah, I'm still feeling a bit shaken by it i'd say yeah me too and i think a lot a lot of people are and i think if you if anyone who's ever come across the team either personally or on the field would would, would still be feeling it now you you mentioned the last bit of the uh, of the game jess what what in particular shocked you about it was it just the all blacks were so good or were there one or two errors that england made well the line i is England's bread and butter, isn't it? And that's where they get most of their moles. We've we've praised them and there's been criticism of them as well for being so reliant on that line-out driving mole. But that is their bread and butter. Abby Ward is exceptional at the line-out. She's had a 100% success record in multiple matches across the, the World Cup. And to lose that line-out in the final moments of the match was obviously so costly. So that was a that was a shock because I think as soon as they kicked the ball out and went for the line out instead of potentially going for the post in the, those final moments, I think it was the right decision I should say uh, to to kick out and go for go for the line out because you know if if Scarrett had hit the those three points and levelled the score they'd go to extra time and having played with fourteen players for the most part of the match I don't know if England could have matched the intensity of the Black Ferns going into into that. Um, you know, you just think 99% of the time that would have been the winning try that, you know, and they'd have managed to get it. And it's just, you know, for for them, I think they seemed shocked as soon as it didn't go their way. You could see Abby Ward's face just dropped and she looked, she looked shell-shocked. She just didn't know, she didn't look like she knew what to do Mm. in that moment because they're so not used to losing line-outs, especially kind of that close to the try line. We'll, um, we were talking about that before we came on, that that, that fateful final line-out 
Um, did New Zealand just do brilliantly or was there something wrong with England planning there? Yeah, well, I, I think one thing I'd like to say on this is, and it's difficult because there are people who've covered this tournament more closely than me and have, the guys who've gone to New Zealand have followed the team closely and have got a good relationship with them. But I feel like some of the reaction has moved quite quickly onto poor girls, poor women's team, poor Red Roses, amazing team they are. But they made some really significant errors in that game that I think are worth criticising um, constructively. And one of them, I think, was that last line-out. And I think everyone knew that that was going to be the plan, and that's fine. But I think the lack of sort of deception or action from England when they set up that line-out cost them because everyone in the world knew where that was going to go. And it's a gamble jump for the Black Ferns mm. ladies to go and nick it off her. So I just think that they could have done more there to have won that last liner, and it might have won them a tournament. And it all comes down to that, doesn't it? They've been honing this more for the whole tournament and for longer than that, and it, they let them down in the last play. So for all the work they've done, I think they made a, a critical error of skill there right at the very end of the match. I'll just come on to Stuart um, about the philosophy of criticising this this team in a minute. But Jess, um, a couple of other things. There seem to be, as in every case, there's a sort of uh, almost like a witch hunt for scapegoats, if if that's not a mixed metaphor. But um, Lydia Thompson, uh, the great winger, uh, and she is a great winger, probably the best has ever been, um, was red carded. um, And was that in a way her fault or was it a complete accident and uh, how much difference did that make? Well we have this conversation in rugby a lot don't we about intent um, versus result and the red card is completely valid in my opinion for Lydia. It was terrible technique, Uh, it was face to face, you know completely the wrong cheek to cheek um, that we're told to go for in rugby. She'd gone, it was more nose to nose, it was a really irresponsible and dangerous tackle and the red card for me is completely justified Portia Woodman looked in a really bad way she had tonic posturing on the side of the pitch which is a sign of a a serious brain injury or concussion and so the red card completely justified it was a turning point in the game wasn't it England were two tries ahead moments after that red card New Zealand got back in the game and, and scored so it was a turning point I don't think that Lydia should be seen as some evil character. It's the last thing she'd have wanted to do. I honestly don't think that she went into that tackle wanting to 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 do that. I don't think she went there to to hit Portia Woodman in the face and knock her unconscious. I definitely don't think it was her intention. She's an absolutely lovely person. It's not in her character to do something like that. It's not something we've seen from her before. I do believe it was an accident. But those accidents, regardless of your intention, have to be a red card, in in my opinion. So I don't kind of buy anything about red cards ruining games. If we care about brain health, I think that those kind of incidents have to be punished so um it did change the game i don't think lydia is an evil person but had to be a red card Stuart, um we we are on slightly um um virgin territory here because uh the team the england team over the years have been so outward uh, outgoing so engaging such great ambassadors and and, uh, uh, unlike the sort of men's team you could say but is it not um time now in the in the development of the of the game of the of the women's game 
and into professionalism where in an analysing um, defeat we actually apply exactly the same rules, for want of a better word, as we do for men's internationals. Absolutely. There has been a degree of cheerleading. Let's not kid ourselves. Um, Sport uh, brings out the patriot in in a lot of people and there was a perception that uh, the Red Roses were going to New Zealand and they were going to win and they developed a, a huge following. They have been an outstanding team. Uh, they've won a, an amazing number of games on the bounce. They play some super rugby, not necessarily when they're up against the best teams, but they've done England proud. But there was this degree of it's the Women's World Cup. We're going to develop the game. A, a lot of things came together um, and made it very easy to be too supportive. And I think uh, Jess, by the way, uh, got it absolutely right in, in her comments about the red card. There was no intent, but that is an irrelevance. Um, the technique was terrible. I, I, I'm sure I, I totally agree with you, both of you. We'll come to Will in a minute, but um, okay, there was an unbelievable atmosphere. Okay, it was great for the women's game. Fine, it was. But actually, as far as England concerned, it was the greatest chance they've they will have had ever and also for the next three years to, to win. And my God... Um, the thing is, it was it was it didn't play huge at home because of the timing. But if they'd won and come back to Heathrow with the trophy and been on sports oh. personality with the trophy, uh, it would have been totally different. Will? Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on some comments that Simon Middleton's now made after the tournament, and he fronted up to the media for a second time out in Auckland, mm. having lost, which is fair play to him because it he must be still heartbroken. But the one thing he talked about was 20-minute red cards, which I feel like is a Southern Hemisphere idea that's trying to permeate North, which is totally unwelcome, that we don't want that. No one up this way of the world, maybe Simon Middleton does, they want want 20-minute red cards. I think it justifies some sort of thuggish action, and I'm not saying that Lydia Thompson is a thug at all, and that's not what I'm saying, but... If you look at the Peter Stefti toy tackle on Jonathan Tonti, which left him with a fractured cheekbone, again, with that, you get comments on social media and players and coaches saying, oh, he's not that sort of bloke. That's never come into it. It's the same thing with Lydia Thompson. That's never come into it. We've had that sort of conversation in football for years where someone goes, oh, he's not that sort of player. It's the sort of Harry Redknapp type thing to say when someone gets a red card and you just think it's got nothing to do with it. If their technique's poor, they're going to get sent off. Jess, you mentioned uh, that you felt shocked. You've covered this tournament magnificently for us and for other people. We let, we let you have the last word um, on it, the disappointment, uh, where, and where, where they carry on from here, really. So I think on the pitch, I I think some selection decisions were called into to question um, with the, the final, you know, with Leanne Infante being injured, Lucy Packer, I think, stood up excellently, the replacement scrum half. It it did, for many people, bring into the question, you know, why was Natasha Hunt left at, at home? For me, I think Lucy Packer did exactly what Simon Middleton needed her to do and was to play the game plan. Um, my argument would be that potentially Natasha Hunt could have played a bit better what's in front of her. And I think that's what England were missing, was being able to play what was happen- what was happening in front of them. Off the pitch, it's been phenomenal. We had 1.7 million people watching ITV's coverage of the final. There was 42,000 people at Eden Park watching it. I think we're on the right track there. We don't need to keep banging the drum because it's it, it doesn't even need banging anymore. People are seeing the, 
the beauty of women's rugby and they're enjoying it and they're watching it. And I was hosting a watch party at the Cabbage Patch pub in Twickenham for the final. And at 5.45am, we had a queue of 120 people out the door ready to come in to watch it. We had over 200 people in a pub on a Saturday morning watching the final. It was absolutely brilliant. There's already been 20,000 tickets sold for the England versus France match at Twickenham, which is likely to be the Grand Slam decider in the Six Nations. So there's lots of positive things happening off the pitch. So really, it's difficult to draw any huge conclusions for me. I don't think that there needs to be some huge review into the management. I'm quite happy with, with what happened. I think Simon Middleton is actually exceptional. I think his assistants are exceptional as well. I think really it's just about England being able to perform a bit better when they're under that intense pressure. Jess, I was just about to say, um, it's very unusual for you, Stuart, uh, Will and I to be in the same um, studio without disagreeing. I totally disagree about Simon Middleton. I think that he had one chance and the coaches, in a way, were part of the uh, the, the people who blew it in, in uh, Belfast. Uh, he's had another chance. He had every single advantage known to mankind, including professionalism, and he did not. He came up short, and uh, I would be absolutely staggered if they keep him on. Uh, Jess, uh, I d- don't take back for a second what I said about how oh, magnificently you've done this. Uh, in three years' time, I know you'll be sitting in in this seat and many other seats and reporting on... England as world champions and uh, the Red Roses as world champions. And just for a like a personal note, uh, I know we've been saying that uh, criticism is is valid, but uh, when you have people like Sarah Hunter, Emily Scarrett, and all those heroes, uh, Sarah Byrne, all those heroes who've come through this process, it is incredibly difficult not to feel the humanity and the pain of the whole situation. And um, we're going to go back now to get the view almost from on the ground in New Zealand. Um, Elgin Alderman and Rachel Burford were our travelling heroes. We've already been sent um, a letter of congratulations from the New Zealand breweries for their their contribution down there. Uh, They were at the final. Uh, They caught up on Sunday to look back on the dramatic events. Hello and welcome to the Ruck on Tour. We are on a sunny balcony at the Sky City Hotel. It is now just about 20 hours since the Red Roses' devastating 34-31 Rugby World Cup final defeat by the Black Ferns. I'm joined by Rachel Burford, former England centre, and we'll just be chatting through some of the things that happened last night. So Rachel, firstly your thoughts on, on an astonishing 80 minutes of rugby. Yeah, like I, I generally don't know where to start with that that question. I think remarkable scenes from both teams. You know, complete heartbreak for what I witnessed for England, having been there. Um, and then also, you know, remarkable to see what New Zealand have achieved in such a short space of time. It's been a challenging probably twenty hours, certainly for the players, but also everybody on the peripheral as well. And it's a bit of a you know, we've come to the end of the World Cup, this was the goal, this was the plan, and everyone believed that they were the team and they had the team to win this tournament. And then to have lost it in the fashion that they lost it is probably what makes it even worse. The key moment, just in terms of how the game changed, was so early on. England scored that great back try for, for Ellie Kildun and then Amy Kakane's first maul try, so they 
shoot into a 14-0 lead and then Lydia Thompson's red card after 18 minutes. You know, what, what was your take on the incident and, and just what happened with, with Lydia's incident there? Well, I think, you know, it was really exciting, actually, the selection that the team had picked with putting Holly Aitchison and putting Lydia into the starting side, which gave the indication they wanted to move the ball a bit more. And we saw that literally in the opening few minutes, which was all then set up at, for what was going to be in a brilliant, wide, expansive attacking game from England. And then obviously with the, the red card, which it was a fair call by the referee. You know, Lydia is one of the nicest people and anybody who's ever done an interview of her or knows her, she's probably the nicest human on the planet. So there was no intention to do what she did and she will hold that defeat on her shoulders massively. But players have got to be able to drop their body height you know if you're screaming across you've got to check your feet and then drop your body height ever so slightly and then that's a different outcome maybe potentially still a card but not a red card and you know most games are full-blown conclusions when a red card happens um you think right well opposition's definitely going to win this game but England managed to stay in that game to the 79th minute which is a remarkable achievement in itself from them like the hard work but but ultimately, that that red card did cost them the game because if in, if Lydia was still on the pitch, they would have 100% would have won that game. And, and you could see that in how New Zealand's four kind of flowing backstrides all all happened on the left, didn't they? Which is where where Lydia would have been. Now, it was very telling from where I was sitting around a lot of Black Ferns fans. Obviously, there were about 40,000 of them in the stadium, <laughs> decrying England's boring mall tactics four of their tries were scored by that tactic but obviously because they were a player down in the backs and that is such a super strength it was the always going to be the way that they were going to try and play after the red card was that was that always going to be how they were going to approach the game yeah I, I like and I think you know that was their way to win the game in New Zealand have a different way to try and win the game and I think you've got to use your strengths as a final it applies pressure no teams, every team going into a game against England will, say, will be saying we've got to make sure our discipline's on point because of what they can do. And if you make errors and you give away penalties, then you're going to get punished. And just because it's not being punished out wide doesn't mean it's not that exciting. And I, and I think, you know, the four tries from the Moors were excellently executed. And it's testament to England's dogged determination that they were leading as late as the 71st minute and then that fateful final line-out when you thought, here we are, it's going to be England's super strength. They've got a five-metre line-out. You've got Abby Ward ready to gobble the ball up and for the pack to rumble over. And then almost to compound the 80 minutes for England, it was the line-out that, that failed them at the end. What, what, what were you thinking when, when they walked up to that final line-out with the clock dead and three points behind? I was thinking, what a way to win a final. Genuinely believed, you know, as soon as the referee... Um, from the first penalty you know Scarrett straight away pointed to the corner like they have 100% belief in in that pack and what they can do come line out time and I was the same I thought Rohay Demant made the wrong decision to tap she should have kicked long which then gave England the first penalty so I was thinking has she just lost the game for her team and then obviously England changed that fate and then thinking oh my god England are going to win it in once the hooter has gone what a way to win a final that was what was going through my head and obviously it's yet another final defeat for yeah. the red roses by by the black ferns they always just seem to get their act together when it when it matters obviously 2017 was such a 
driving force of despair for so many of the players. You know, seven of the pack were still in the starting 15 from five years ago. Just in terms of the 2017 final, from your, from your memories, what was it like you know, dealing with that? And quite similar scenarios in that England were leading and then the Blackburns came strong in the second half, obviously without a red card five years ago. Yeah, I think, you know, it's something that really sticks with you and it's really hard to get over. You know, a number of other players from... Um, 2010 through to 2014 you know it took until 2014 to get over it sometimes it takes getting the win to get over what you've done previously there was certainly a funeral atmosphere at the team hotel this morning you know, Simon Milton said he, he doesn't think he'll ever be able to get over it you know he was visibly sort of crestfallen by the result players very very quiet how will they respond to this after you know winning 30 games in a row and then losing the one that mattered most how will how, how will those characters in that squad respond to this I think it will take time for certain but what England need to recognize is what they have achieved and like that 80 minutes doesn't define their legacy and what they created around the world you know they're they're the team that challenged other unions why they're not professional you know, England came out saying we can't keep playing amateurs and that put pressure on and, and that's changing. Wales got their contracts not so long after that and, and there's a ripple effect and England have led that way and although you don't want to be that group of players that are just always doing good for things and not getting those personal rewards, um, there'll be some players within the squad that will see that, will see the bigger picture side of things and there'll be a lot of support around them and outside externally that will really want to hammer that home to them that what they've achieved isn't ultimately a gold medal but they're the, they are the standard setters within women's rugby And England have even set the standards for the Black Ferns themselves because it was the, the tour last autumn when England stuffed them that they realised wow, we're, we're a long way off the pace here. The fact that they've turned it around so much in 12 months and obviously bringing in Wayne Smith one of the greatest coaches of all time for just a little seven month stint where he's just completely mm. turned them around I mean it's quite remarkable what they've done as well just even given their, their pedigree and World Cup wins previously yeah I mean they, they were down and out 12 months ago you know written off embarrassed um, not looking like a, a Black Ferns team that we've ever seen before and it just shows that good investment, good support and quality coaching, what it can do. It was quite a sizable crowd of people on, on Queen Street. All the squad were, yeah, they were wearing some sunglasses. I'm sure <laughs> it wasn't just because of the weather, because I don't think it was sunny at the time. Uh, with Wayne Smith, big crowd cheering them on. It does feel like almost New Zealand have almost succeeded in the women's game in spite of everything around them uh, over the past. But it does feel like in the past week, that support is now there and the nation has sort of fallen in love with, with the Black Ferns, doesn't it feel like that? Oh, it really does. I mean, until, up until Saturday, well, up until this Rugby World Cup, nobody had ever paid to watch a women's game in New Zealand. And then they, they part of the reason they've sold out Eden Park and I think it was 42 plus thousand were, were there. They really have captured it. And, and if you row back to six weeks ago, opening weekend, again, another sold out. And then, you know, when we're in Whangarei, crowds piling in. So this this group, this nation, this, these fans have followed this journey. And that's a telling of a story. It's not just, oh, we've dipped into a game because there's a game on around the corner. They've captured, they captured their, the hearts and minds of their entire nation. And what of the tournament for 
the women's game at large, what has it been like in terms of the advancement of the game, the, the huge number of crowds we've seen? What's, uh, what will be the legacy of this tournament? Well, I think you can't look past first the talent. Like the standard of rugby has been phenomenal, and you cast your eyes even back to like the Fiji South Africa game. The the level of different styles and athleticism from both of those teams. You look, think of those that Wales um, Scotland fixture, how tight that was. You know, we've got real small margins um, at part at probably two ends of of the tournament. Now we need to need to close that gap. But I think we're definitely on the right direction. And I think, you know, think of what England, France um, and New Zealand have started in that kind of professional era. I don't think there's any other way now for women's rugby, for what's been displayed, what's expected of these players, the fans that they're getting in front of, the broadcast opportunities that they're getting worldwide, the media coverage. I can't see how this can continue as an amateur sport at, at this elite level. Absolutely, and I think thoughts of England fans already probably turning to a potential rematch in 2025 at a sold-out Twickenham against the Blackburns, another final. Before that as well, of course, England versus France, potential Grand Slam decider at Twickenham in April. About 18,000 tickets sold already. I think the RFU are looking for about 40,000, so I'm sure we'll see that growth in the next few months. Thank you very much, Rachel Burford, for joining me. Uh, I've been Elgin Alderman, and I think it's time to go pack and time to get back to the UK. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Okay, so much to get stuck into now. Let's talk Autumn Nations. And the most recent game was Scotland-New Zealand at Murrayfield. Stuart, have we seen it all before? Decent Scotland hour, bad Scotland last 20, never really after that looked likely to win. No, I think it's slightly different, Steve. I, I think New Zealand were vulnerable uh, once that game got back to 14-7. Um, Scotland were riding contention there. And I think the reality is um, they three times got penalised millimetres from New Zealand's line. Had they been more efficient and got, had not suffered from white line fever, I think they could have won that game. Uh, New Zealand, in contrast, were very good at taking their opportunities, but they weren't that good at that much else. The game was there for Scotland to win uh, and they couldn't close it out. And, you know, I felt it was a, a weak looking New Zealand backline, and they played confused rugby. And, you know, we know, as they showed in Cardiff, they can do pyrotechnic things, but they are not a great team. And Scotland will see that as possibly the biggest chance they've ever had. Let's slip. Will, in your heart, did you think that Scotland could could hold on? No. Okay. <laughs> they never do. That's that's the theme of Scotland, I think. Um, and they do it in the Six Nations. Sometimes they get one marquee result, and then the next week they they fade off. They do that quite a lot against England. They have a problem about backing up wins with other wins. I think There's, we've heard now for about five or six years that this is the greatest Scotland generation since the nineties. They need to start performing and, and pulling off results to justify that. I mean, they've got very good players. Guys like Finn Russell came in. Uh, Jamie Ritchie was very good. Stuart Hogg played well. But it sounds harsh because they've never beaten New Zealand. But this is one of the worst New Zealand vintages. Yeah. And that's not an opinion. That's a fact because they've lost four games this year. And they, the last time they lost five was in 1998. So it, it is the the worst all-black touring team that are coming in living memory, albeit that they're getting much better and Papali, Dalton Papali and Ardi Surveyor were, were excellent um, winning turnovers. 
and then expertly managed the last quarter by TJ Perinara. But I, I, I wasn't surprised, really. And I was texting our, our good friend and rut colleague Al Dimmock about it during the game. And I think I said something along the lines of like, so how, in which ways are they going to mess this up then when they were lead, when Scotland were winning? And he was like, oh, come on, mate, don't. And, and just texted him the sort of bearing teeth emoji at the end when they did. <laughs> OK, fair enough. Stuart, uh, you did say uh, on right on Sunday morning, this is Scotland's jet best chance against a vulnerable team. This just, uh, j- just a second now, we'll come back to the game, but um, where are they vulnerable? Because they have got a big game at Twickenham on Saturday. Where should England be targeting? Uh, they're vulnerable in terms of selection. Uh, they're not well managed. Ian Foster's a, a decent bloke, but he doesn't have that um, cutting edge that former New Zealand managers have had. He doesn't see through the game. New Zealand's pack is is, is fairly strong, um, but I think England will target their scrum. I think England will stick with the Toje at six, so they've got a three-man line out. If they can play uh, a fairly straightforward game in terms of getting over the game line, they can rattle New Zealand. And for the All Blacks, I mean, if they go Smith, Moanga, Geordie Barrett 12 and Bowden 15, that strengthens them greatly. But England can get them playing on the back foot. And and this New Zealand team under Foster, every time it's been on a back foot, it's been as unconvincing as England are on the back foot under Eddie Jones. So this is going to be a game where gathering momentum and dominating the game line is everything. And while Surveyor and Papali'i are going really well for New Zealand, I can see the likes of Sinclair and Genge okay. um, devouring that game line before it gets to the back row. OK, we're coming on to the, our England uh, angles on that game in a minute. We'll come back in second, Will. But um, also Ireland, in a rather scruffy game, uh, beat Fiji 35-17. We've already spoken about Italy. Just one more word, though, Will, about Italy. It was a high-profile game in, in a in a high-profile city. Uh, there was a definite, definite passion there. Uh, is this... Is it too soon to say that at least they've reached the corner, possibly not yet turned it? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, they, they played in Florence, which is the, the place where they beat the Springboks. Um, and it was just cool to see an Italian stadium that was full. This is what we want, isn't it? This is what we've always said about Italy, is that we've, we've bagged them in the past fairly because they've been average, and now they're putting together some performances that's only better and good for the game. You said uh, on watch, watching that game and seeing the Italian try, Stuart, we, well, in fact, we both said wow to each other, that delightful little short pass passing game when people come in from deep. I mean, that was the best, the most sort of luxury play we've seen from Italy ever, I think, wasn't it? Uh, gorgeous. I mean, uh, Ioanni, uh does beat a lot of people and he does make a lot of metres, but... Both tries uh, in that Australian game, his um, running lines, his check, timing of pass were exquisite. And when you got someone like Capuzzo coming through, then he's very hard to stop. You, we, we've heard Will saying how small he is. It's almost like you can't believe this sort of little dash of lightning's coming at you, but his timing is brilliant. Wales-Argentina... Um... Wales won, which was very, very important for them. Argentina proved really they couldn't back up um, after their win at Twickenham. And Taolope Faletau provided uh, the real touch of of world class in there. Um, I have to say that uh, the uh, the commentator 
and his um, and James Hook, his summariser, didn't get too excited, quite rightly, by the action. So let's uh, say Weldon Wales and mo- move on. We'll come back to England in a minute, but France, South Africa, Stuart, have you ever seen, well, every, anything quite like it for, for passion, drama, controversy and all the rest and for the idiocy of Razi Erasmus afterwards? Test match that had it all. What's really interesting there, South Africa have lost their last two games, but I think they've found themselves. It's not just about winning. South Africa will come out of that game, having had a man red carded so early and put so much pressure on France in Marseille. And that's the best I've seen them play since the World Cup final, even though they lost. Razi was added again. His tone and the way he does it is utterly unacceptable. Um, but I've got to say, um, I was amazed when Wayne Barnes said, I've seen that, it's a try. He backed himself, and I'm not going to knock him excessively for this because we in the media, or a lot of us, want the games to go quickly, and we don't want you going up to the TMO all the time. But I watched that try, and I rewound it on television, and I'm thinking it's it's not certain. And, and I felt that Wayne got one or two things wrong and was a little bit cavalier And I can understand why Erasmus was upset, but I can't understand the manner in which he expresses his disappointment. That is is awful. This is the hard-hitting, argumentative podcast. I thought Wayne was one yard away. The perfect view. I thought it was a perfect decision. The guy rolled over without being grounded, gave it one more go, and then, as he's perfectly entitled to do, reached out and scored, try definitely. Will, you got the tiebreaker. Well, can I first go into Razzy? Yes. Can we get into that? Yeah. So, John Westerby, our colleague, wrote uh, a piece about this in the, the Monday's um, Times and said, along the lines of, you'd thought someone who was suspended for a year for attacking referees would have calmed down a bit, but clearly not. And he does it in this sort of faux, sarcastic way which is all sort of light and breezy, but we know exactly what he's doing. He's bullying referees, he's targeting people, he's trying to influence decisions. There was also another thing that Owen Slott wrote when he came back after his ban uh, at the start of this Automation series. It was a comment from Nick Mallett about Razzy when he was a player, and he said essentially he does everything in his power to make sure that his team wins, whether right or wrong or whatever. And I think that is a key to remember. And World Rugby need to grow a pair and look beyond. Like I was checking with World Rugby about this on the weekend and they were saying, oh, well, I'm not sure it sort of goes as far as us being able to sanction him or ban him or whatever. But if if a coach did that after a game in a press conference and, and did that, they would get a ban. Dave Rennie's had it before. Eddie Jones has had raps over the knuckles before. Razzie himself. It's the style in which he does it is very different, but we know exactly what he's trying to do. It, this suits the the narrative, doesn't it? Of when we, when the Springboks win, I'm a genius, I'm God, and when we lose, oh, it's, it's still everyone else's fault, and it's tiny refereeing decisions. And I think, I think essentially, you need to grow up, and, and there needs to be a real look at South Africa's relationship with the rugby world because they have this strange chip on their shoulder and have done for a number of years that lots of it stems from not being awarded the World Cup in 2023 mm-hmm. and as I think um, Tim Percival who was the Lions uh, media manager 
and now works at Northampton Saints, put on Twitter, Razzie's becoming the Donald Trump of rugby. And he, I think that's about right because he's got this sort of cultish following that can't be persuaded either way. They've got the blinkers on and he puts them over their eyes and it's, it's damaging, dangerous, and he needs to be sanctioned for it. Uh, completely correct. I think it's despicable. I think he's a lot less funny than he thinks he is and a lot less effective. Don't forget, he doesn't actually hold a proper executive post there, really. The South so, African... Steve, what, what the... do they do, though, Steve? Because he doesn't have a post. So we talk about sanctions. I mean, do, uh, a world rugby going to have to actually say Razzie Erasmus Raz, has to be thrown out of anything to do with South African rugby because... If you're not going to do that, he's just going to be a, a voice on the wind with that, uh, as you both said, that utterly unfunny sarcasm of his, which is debilitating for professionals, well, any sport. I think the problem they have, World Rugby, which happened with his last ban and happened after the Lions thing, is that they, with everything they do against him, are making him to more of a martyr. I don't, is, I don't care if he's a martyr. But it, that's I don't what's care. happening. He, 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 can, he can be a martyr in his own madhouse. For, but as far but as this I'm is what's happening. And he, he's, he can then hold it up as, oh, here we go. Here's another case where World, World Rugby are pulling her pants down. It's all there for, it's all the suits. And, and his sort of Twitter army jumps upon it. Stuart, just, but, let me, we, just one, one more thing on South Africa, if you don't mind. They've, they've changed away perhaps temporarily, from a kicking fly half, which is like taking the four wheels off a Formula One car in, in a way. Have, they've lost their games. You said they played well. But does it not take a lot longer to re-gear yourself when you play in a certain way for 20 years and then you take the yeah. fly half away? And is it not a little bit early to, to, to work out whether they've done it successfully or not? No, I, I'm saying, Steve, in try not to judge them just by results. They beat the Lions and they beat Wales, but they were absolute garbage. They lost to France and they lost to Ireland and they are developing. Um, a lot of it depends on a 33-year-old, Vili LaRue, um, playing that floating game, which he's doing brilliantly. But Pollard hasn't been either fit or the same player he was in 2019 for a long time. Fair point. Mm. Uh, um, they they can't find themselves a number eight. They can't find the link between the, their power game and their backs. And when you think uh, they've got uh, Lucanio and one of the world's best centres to come back, they are developing amazing pace and, uh, and, and and cutting edge out wide. They're actually, I think, finding their game. And and what you say, Steve, about have they got time? I think that's a fair question. Uh, they've only got a year. But if you've got a pack as powerful as theirs that can surge on the front foot and, and give you a lot of very good guaranteed ball, then you're in a good position uh, to develop. What you can't do is change your game and become a, a sort of a seven-a-side or barbarian team if you pack a week. South Africa will never have a weak pack. So they could actually be an awful lot better in the last World Cup than the, in yes. the next World Cup than the last one, because they could actually uh, maximise their huge potential. That's very interesting, and uh, it made me stop and think then. Um, uh, Will, um, um, England, New Zealand, let's go into that. I'm interested to see who Stuart would cho choose at 9 and 10, but Will, the 36-man squad is out. What changes will they make in the starting team? Not sure they'll make loads of changes to the starting team. Um, Owen Farrell's in line to win his 100th cap. He'll almost, well, definitely will play. Um, the interesting call will be over the scrum half, I think, as you mentioned. Jack Van Portfleet did quite well, served his quicker ball than Ben Young's. 
Um, there's also a call up for Adam Radwan, but he's got a hell of a lot of pace and scored another amazing try for mm. Newcastle, which has, in rugby circles, gone viral a bit on over the weekend. But it's it seems that Eddie's pretty wedded to Johnny May. The key, and actually, lots of the players were talking about this in the mix zone. The kind of blueprint from that 2019 semi-final where England blasted them in the first four minutes and set the tone for the whole thing. I think there were there was evidence that you can still do that to New Zealand in that Scotland game where they had um, Tui Pilotu carrying heavily, they had Duan van der Merwe on the wing. So I think that kind of um, power game, which will mean Sinclair and Genge coming to the fore, Itoji carrying hard, guys like Tuilangi carrying hard, that's that kind of shock and awe thing that you can get into New Zealand. And they do fumble, they do make mistakes, they do panic under pressure. Stuart, um you can get at New Zealand. You've already you've already said that. Can you get it um, by continuing the failed experiment at fly half with Marcus Smith? Gosh, Steve, I've been thinking about this midfield selection for so many hours. It is so difficult. Marcus Smith scored two tries, but he he didn't have a good game. Um, but that's not necessarily all his fault. The way England are playing, uh, it doesn't function. Smith has to take the game by the balls and get more onto the gain line. I don't like the idea of England looping 10 yards deeper, but, you know, uh, the steward first try, that was Farrell taking the ball, the loop round, the beautifully timed pass nearer the gain line. Two minutes later, it was Smith to Farrell with the chip to May. It can work. I don't think it has worked. I'm very sceptical. I think they should go... Thocken, a singer on the right wing, and that gives them, along with Stewart, a couple of blokes who can really hit hard. So um, I, I'm not saying that, that Smith and Farrell has convinced me. It hasn't, but I'm even less convinced about Tua Lange. Therefore, because of that, I would go Smith, Farrell and uh, Henry Slade. I, um, I'd, I'd never thought that uh, Marcus Smith would work, um, and I think people are expecting him to do something like he does for Quinns when it's also it's a kind of chalk and cheese game. Uh, Farrell has been magnificent at 10. I'd always have him there. He looks out of place and he looks sad and not himself when he's at 12. I don't care how well, much Steve, how much body language he does. He, 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 and also, I have to say, I don't think Tulangi is ripping up the trees, but the idea of leaving him out against the All Blacks, who actually do respect him, and, and he did roast them the last time England beat them at Twickenham, uh, I mean, and the other thing is he's only about his fourth game. I mean, Tuolangi would be the second person I wrote on the team sheet. The first would be would be the first would be um, uh, Owen Farrell at ten. Though that's my first two, um, and, and and absolutely no doubt. And I'm actually sure that's what they'll they'll do. But can, can we just go on to some good news, Stuart? We were chatting on Saturday, and um, talk about people coming in and 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 and, and settling down. And approaching world class, Ellis Genge, I'd say for one. You and I were talking about Johnny Hill, um, and there's one, there's one or two, there's one or two others that obviously uh, the fullback uh, steward uh, for three. Do you think there's like a generation now coming through who can take it to anybody? I don't know. There's, there's there's some good players. I love the attitude of Genge. Genge attacking defence. Is outstanding. He seems to be really up in his game at the scrum as well. He's worked out. It's not just a, a pause before he does fantastic things. Um, there is the inkling. Um, 
Hill, as we said from the press book, is doing a, a lot of little things very well and has really sort of picked up his game at Sale. I don't maybe it's those great big brutish South Africans all around him, but he does seem to have found his game. Um, as for Freddie Stewart, I was interested in something Eddie Jones said post-match where he, where he said he took a lot of easy catches and Jones was almost sort of suggesting it wasn't hard for him against Japan and it wasn't. And he's had a couple of indifferent games for Leicester, but he, when he does wear the England shirt, he does seem to be a lot, lot stronger. And he looked quick and he looked powerful, but, but this will be the test because Mwanga will come back at 10 and there will be a, a more subtle kicking game. And, and it's the subtlety of kickers who put him under pressure. Sometimes he doesn't get down to ball that well, and he's going to have to manage that back three. So, this is a huge game for him. I think this is probably the the, the, the moment of truth. And I think he'll come through. Boys, uh, let's just move on. But I'm going to ask you for your predictions for the match. I know it's cruel, but uh, I'm going to do so. Um, St- uh, Stuart, uh, so let's go to Will first. Who do you fancy for the game? And just name me one crucial element. Eddie Jones has beaten New Zealand six times. Uh, only Andy Farrell and Bob Dwyer have beaten them more, so he's very good at doing it. I think I would just... It's so hard because New Zealand haven't been very good this year, but they have pulled off some decent results. And England haven't been very good this year and have pulled off some quite decent results. So I would just, I think, at the moment, push it towards New Zealand by a couple of points, only because I'm just sort of not quite convinced with what England are doing yet, and they haven't shown consistently that they can put together that 2019 opening salvo, which they need to do. Stuart, uh, Will's got um, New Zealand by two. I, You know, Steve, I, I'm not a patriot. I don't have a patriotic bone in my body, so I'm not saying this with any sort of jingoistic uh, belief. I will be very shocked if England don't win um, I think this New Zealand team don't handle pressure. Um, Twickenham's a place where they've had a few shocks. England, they know, along with France and Ireland, are not afraid of them. And I just think England have got a pack that can take the game to them. And where will it be won or lost? If Ardi Surveyor is forced on the back foot, Aaron Smith, who is an absolute genius uh, when things are going his way, will struggle. If he struggles, Moonga struggles, the whole thing collapses. And I can see New Zealand looking very disappointing if Genji and company, from the very first minute, put it to New Zealand, uh, scrum line out, and every sort of tackle, ruck, breakdown. Uh, it, you stop Ardi Surveyor, you then also stop Aaron Smith. And that is, I think, New Zealand are then scratching their heads and they're not a very good team when they're scratching. And here we are in the studio and we're just putting the Union Jack to half-mast after that um, <laughs> speech by, by Barnsley. For me, it'd be New Zealand by five if they can get that really fast really? Le- fast left and right um, driving game going, which, which they caned Wales and which they caned Scotland in the second half. I think they got, they got, they've got a great chance. I think it's the key is who... who has 15 on the field for the longest period of the match. I can see I can see reds, yellows coming at, at a certain rate. One final point on that. Anyone who saw Saracens play yesterday 
will be frothing at the mouth that in the slow-moving England team, Ben Earl is not even on the bench. He was absolutely rocketing sensational. And that's uh, I'll leave that uh, line hanging. We've got 2-1 in favour of New Zealand from the true experts. Coming up next, we'll be nominating our God or Goddess of the Week. Also our Fool of the Week. Uh, I bet you can guess who that is. And also imminent is the announcement of the World Rugby uh, Player of the Year um, Awards. We'll be making our choice as well. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. It's time, that time of the year when uh, World Rugby announced their nominations uh, in the end of season or end of year awards. Nominations are already out in some categories, including coaching. There's Simon Middleton, Wayne Smith, Andy Farrell, and Fabian Gautier. Stuart. A year ago, New Zealand's women lost 43-12 and 56-15 to the Red Roses in England. One year later, 
Wayne Smith has them winning the World Cup. I know Eden Park is a big advantage, right. but that has to be one of the great 12 months effort in coaching. It has to be Wayne Smith without a question. Will, is your choice in amongst those four? Uh, no, the choice I think should, that should have won it is Pablo Lemoyne, the Chilean coach who took them to the World Cup. Ridiculous achievement to do that and to not even be on the list is a real shame. If it was on the list, I think it would be Wayne Smith. And actually, Alex and I had this debate last week on the ruck of what's the tariff of Ireland and France's year. Is France's unbeaten year so far slightly less of a tariff than Ireland winning away in New Zealand? Sorry, talk tariffs. Winning away in New Zealand is what Ireland did. And I think on this list, Andy Farrell is so far ahead of the others. I mean, to continue it back in this country, but to win down there in the best series we've seen for years puts him way ahead for me. Stuart, to Young Player of the Year, Henry Arundel, Ange Capuozzo, Dan Sheehan, Mac Hansen. Is your choice on there? Yes, Ange Capuozzo. Um, Arundel scored still one of the great individual tries of my lifetime. He hasn't had enough game time for England. Sheehan's been brilliant for Ireland. But you've got to contextualise this. Italy have been struggling for so long. Capuozzo turned the game against Wales in Cardiff. The most memorable moment, including the fact that France won the Grand Slam in last year's uh, in last season, Six Nations, was created by this full-back. Then he goes against Australia and scores two absolutely blinding tries. Italy have beaten Wales in Cardiff. They've beaten Australia for the first time ever at home. Capuozzo has to be the man. When we uh, recorded uh, today, we didn't have uh, the nominations for Player of the Year, Male Player of the Year. They're coming out later. Who should be on there, Stuart? Who should be on there? Who should be on there? Um, well, my Player of the Year, without any doubt at all, is um, Ardi Surveyor. And New Zealand have struggled, and I, I've been very critical of New Zealand this year, and that's why... I'm such a big fan of Sarvea. He has just played to an astonishing level in a team that has struggled. When they play well, he is the man. When they're struggling, he's the bloke that just offers the resistance. Will, your choice, and would you go anywhere near the reigning champion, Antoine Dupont? Yeah, I don't think Dupont has had as good a year as he did last year. And actually, if I was compiling the list, I would put Greg Aldrich on there key part of the Grand Slam winning French team and won the Champions Cup with La Rochelle, which I feel like should come into it too because that's a remarkable achievement for a team who hadn't basically won anything until that. Mm -hmm. um, just on the, you mentioned the, the breakthrough one before that, I think justice for David Niniashvili is another thing that Al Dimmock was tweeting earlier mm -hmm. and I agree with that, that the young Georgian should be on there, but I like Kapowitzer and it's helped him probably that um, he scored a couple of tries just before they <laughs> announce it. But Dan Sheehan, I feel like, is a good shout and a bit of also some justice for front rowers who almost never make these lists. So it'd be cool for Jack Dan Sheehan to win that. But on the, on the main one, I'm not sure about Dupont so much. I think I'd have Greg Aldrich on there for sure. But you need to have some Irish on there, I suppose. And Josh van der Fleer would be very high up the list. He won the... Uh, European Cup Player of the Year, so to do the double would be a pretty remarkable achievement in a remarkable season for him. It has been. A, I would have thought Lucanu Am would have been a great contender had he not been injured for quite a long time. That's it. We now go straight on to God or Goddess of the Week. Who's ready? Yeah, I mean, I tipped him up earlier on the show to be the um, Coach of the Year. I, I just think Wayne Smith has shown 
that one year is plenty of time to take an absolute rabble and turn it into the world's best. And if England are to lose to New Zealand, who they shouldn't lose to, and then to lose to South Africa, and Bill Sweeney decides that perhaps they have got to panic and make a change, Wayne Smith has shown that in a year, you bring him into Twickenham and he could make the difference. Will? Uh, Goddess. I think we need to do a Goddess. Mm. Um, Women's World Cup final. Despite our constructive criticism of the Red Roses, it was an incredible event. And watching that in the morning... and. I think you'd be heart of stone to not be moved by some of the scenes at that game and the finale was ridiculous. But I thought my favourite player of the match was Stacey Fluler, the centre, who's got one of the most amazing smiles in world rugby. And this the little stop and go she did to beat Emily Scarrett on the left wing that set up her own try with a 1-2 was unbelievably good. And then she actually injured herself later in the game and, and managed to walk all the way around the pitch with everyone cheering her name. And it, it was fantastic. So I think I'd have, I would have her as my goddess of the week as a World Cup winning Black Fern. Finally, from me, I think with it, the unanimous choice of fool of the week is uh, Razi Erasmus. In fact, he's fool of the century. So we've doubled and trebled his award. Ben Earl is my, um, is my god of the week. No question. All you have to do is watch the game. Uh, and he, he was absolutely fantastic. Okay, thanks for sticking with us. This has been The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. Follow or subscribe from wherever you get the podcast. This episode was edited and produced by the one and only Alfie Reynolds. And please come back next week. We'll be discussing England's fate against the New Zealand rabble and um, all other games as the climax of the Autumn Nations arrives. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.